BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, October 23rd, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash inquiringminds or Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, photography, anything else you'd like at any time from anywhere. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus for free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. Now, if you're one of our regular listeners, you'll know that last week we interviewed social psychologist Brad Bushman, who talked about guns and violence and video games. And we had uh, a few comments from our listeners that we wanted to address. And Kishore and I, at the end of the show, also talked about how we weren't sure how the social psychologists measured violence in particular. Um, we understood that they measured aggression, but we weren't quite sure how then that translated into actual physical violence. Especially in the context of video games. Especially in the context of video games. So I had Brad Bushman come back for a rebuttal uh, to answer some of our questions. And so at the top of the show today, you'll hear a a short interview with Brad Bushman again, in which we're going to talk about these very issues. How do we measure violence? How does that relate to aggression? And what does that all have to do with video games? But for our interview today, I interviewed Ariel Waldman, who is the founder of SpaceHack.org, which is a way for any old person to participate in space exploration. She herself is not a scientist in the sense that she did not go to school for science. And that makes her unique in the sense that she actually still kind of does science. In fact, she's been employed by NASA, she's worked on white papers for NASA, and she's had an influence in how this country is approaching space. She's also the global director of Science Hack Day, which is in 20 countries around the world. It's a grassroots endeavor to make things with science. And she has a book coming out next year with Chronicle called What's It Like in Space, in which she talks to astronauts about space. 
So that'll be our interview for today. But before we get to uh, my interview with Ariel, let's go back to talk to Brad Bushman. Welcome back to Inquiring Minds, Brad Bushman. Thank you. So at the end of our show, Kishore and I were talking a little bit about the interview, and we had the question of whether or not the measures of aggression in the studies showing that video games increase aggression can be translated into actual violence. And you have some idea that they can. So let's start there. How do you measure either aggression or violence in the types of studies that have traditionally shown a correlation between watching video games and increases in aggression? Before we go too far, I think I should define what I mean by aggression. Aggression is any behavior that's intended to harm another person who doesn't want to be harmed. The harm could be uh, psychological or physical, whereas violence is any behavior intended to cause extreme physical harm, such as injury or death. So obviously researchers can't randomly assign participants to play violent or nonviolent games and then see if they shoot each other with guns afterwards. So in laboratory experiments, which are the uh, ones that we can make the strongest causal statements with, uh, researchers have to come up with other ways for participants to harm another person uh, physically. And of course, they can't cause extreme physical harm in these studies. So some examples are maybe you've heard of Stanley Milgram, the guy that did the research using electrical uh, shocks. Uh, Some researchers have measured aggressive behavior in laboratory experiments using electrical shocks. Other researchers have used um, unpleasant blasts of noise uh, delivered through uh, headphones The noises range from no noise at all to, at least in our lab, 105 decibels, which is about the same volume as a smoke alarm or a fire alarm going off, except for directly into your ears. And the noise levels are a combination of noises that many people really hate, like fingernails scratching on chalkboards, dentist drills, sirens, blow horns, all uh, mixed together. So we would argue that if participants can choose any, and maybe imagine that at the level of a fire alarm going off directly in your ears, and participants can also choose how long their partner suffers by uh, controlling the noise duration. And we argue that Participants who can choose uh, any noise level uh, they want, those who choose higher noise levels for longer durations are behaving uh, more aggressively than those who choose lower noise levels for shorter durations. Researchers have also used hot sauce. The partner is a confederate who pretends to be another participant and who uh, they exchange information about what kinds of things they like and dislike, including food. And uh, their partner uh, hates spicy food. And in a later taste test, the participant gets to decide how much uh, spicy food their partner has to eat. Um, And they get to taste it themselves first. It's kind of hot sauce with like three X's on the front or whatever that's really 
uh, very, very spicy. Uh, in our lab, we've also we've used that measure as well, and we've also participants can have their partner put his or her arm in water with ice cubes in it, which is very painful and unpleasant. I don't know if you've ever tried to uh, do that, but we argue that the longer participants have their partner put their hand in the ice water, the more aggressive they are. In studies involving uh, children, you can use more natural measures, uh, such as recording what they do on the playground after they play a violent versus nonviolent video game, like pushing other kids down or tripping them, pulling their hair, kicking them, punching them, uh, things like that. That seems like the most sort of valid, I know, using the psychological term of validity, sort of ecologically uh, measure of, of violence. So I'd, I'd actually love to delve more deeply into those studies of, of, you know, watching children, how they behave at recess. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. So tell us what the results are. Uh, one study was conducted by my colleagues in the Netherlands, and what they did is they told they tested participants in pairs, but they told them, I'm sorry, both of you don't have time to play the game because we don't have enough time, so we're just going to flip a coin, and one of you will play the game and the other will watch. And then what they did is they recorded these kids' uh, behavior on the playground. Do they push others down? Do they hit them, kick them? pull their hair, trip them, uh, things like that. And what they found is girls hardly ever do that. But among the uh, boys, um, those who played the violent game were significantly more aggressive than those who watched. And they also had a nonviolent game control, and aggression was very low for participants who played the nonviolent games. And this is a cool study because it shows one unique aspect of video games, uh, namely uh, active involvement. So we have you know pairs of boys, some of who actually played the game, and the other boys saw exactly the same violent images, but they just watched. They didn't play. And the players were significantly more aggressive than the watchers. So do you think, though, that this could be in part just due to physical arousal? So, I mean, I know there's a long literature suggesting that just running on a treadmill increases your heart rate and then it makes people behave either more aggressively or it makes them misinterpret, say, uh, that arousal as suggesting that they are physically attracted to someone that they're talking to and so on. I mean, to what extent do you think that there are differences or have you ever been able to control for differences in the level of physical arousal at the end of playing these games? Yeah, it's really important to control for that. And uh, in our laboratory studies, we have participants rate the games and we statistically control for all differences between the games except for violent content. Some uh, of those variables include how absorbing the game is, action-packed, addicting, arousing, boring, challenging, competitive, enjoyable, entertaining, exciting, frustrating, fun, involving, and stimulating. Um, and we statistically control for all the differences between the games except for the violent content. So, for example, we know, based on a lot of research, that 
frustration increases aggression, and if、uh, people play a violent, frustrating game versus a non-violent, non-frustrating game, and the violent game players are more aggressive afterwards, you don't know if it's due to the violent content or how frustrating the game is. So it's really important to control for any differences between the video games other than violent content. And so, a lot of our、um, listeners too, who are avid game players, have you know made the good point that, of course, there are tons of different kinds of violent video games. So, is there a resource for people who are interested in you know still enjoying video games, but maybe you know reducing some of the potentially negative social side effects?、Um, you know, is, is there is there a kind of rating system of video games that social psychologists have become involved in that might、um, you know give people an idea of which video games might be safer to play or to let their teenage kids play? Uh, not that I know of. In a meta-analysis, my colleague Craig Anderson and I conducted, we coded for、uh, the content of the video games in our meta-analysis, counting things like are the characters human, humanoid,、uh, is the blood red or green, or can you see blood at all? Can you dismember someone? You know,、um, how much blood and gore is there? You know, things things like that. And what we found is the more graphic and violent the video game, the stronger the effects were on aggression.、Um, we've done some recent research where we had participants play a violent game in a cooperative or competitive、uh, way. So participants、uh, in the competitive condition. Tried to kill each other before the other person killed them. In the cooperative condition, they work together on a team to try to kill a common enemy. And if、uh, they play in a cooperative manner, they're less aggressive afterwards than if they play in a competitive manner. So, do you feel that that's kind of a, a way of attenuating some of the effects of violent video games, is to ensure that people are, you know, part of a team and that they're playing against the computer versus against each other, or You know, is, does it does that not really matter? Yeah, it, well, it mattered in in our study. People who played in a cooperative manner were less aggressive than those who played in a competitive manner. Personally, you know, if if you're an adult, I don't really care what you do. If you're eighteen and older,、uh, yeah, you can play M-rated games. They're for players seventeen and older, or even if you're seventeen and older, you can play those. Or you want to smoke cigarettes? Go ahead, drink beer. Uh, if you l- legally can, do it. Just don't drive on the road while I'm on the road,、uh, or smoke in the room when I'm in the room. So I'm not con- really so concerned about what adults do. What I'm much more concerned about is what children do. You know, I don't want children to be smoking cigarettes or drinking beer or、uh, playing age-inappropriate video games. So children under 17 years old should not be playing. Uh, M-rated uh, games, for example, and those under 13 should not be rate, playing teen-rated games for players、uh, 13 and older. Is there anything else that you think our listeners should know in terms of the aggregate of these studies? I mean, I, I know that some people have pointed out that there are some studies suggesting that maybe this effect is attenuated by personality, for example.、Um, and sometimes, you know, it's easy for people to find one study that you know found a null effect or or didn't. You know, how would you 
give people advice in terms of how they should, um, you know, what conclusions should we come away from in terms of the scientific consensus on, on this topic? Well, we did a survey and we asked uh, a large group of pediatricians and a large group of media researchers whether they thought violent video games increased aggression in children. And over 90% of the pediatricians agreed or strongly agreed with that. And uh, about two out of every three media researchers either agreed or strongly agreed with that. Uh, the remainder were about equally divided between undecided and, and disagree. Um, what about so, among social psychologists? What do you think those numbers would look like? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. We didn't. Uh, you know, the the advantage of looking at media researchers is that's what they specifically study. They we thought they would be the most informed about the effects. Where you know, social psychologists can study a number of different things that are totally unrelated to the media. So. Um, yeah, there's never complete consensus on any topic, but uh, we did a comprehensive review of uh, all the video game studies we could find, the violent game studies. Uh, we found uh, 381 effects from studies involving over 130,000 participants that clearly showed that violent video games increase aggressive thoughts, they increase angry feelings. They increase physiological arousal, such as heart rate and blood pressure. They increase aggressive behavior. Uh, they decrease helping behavior. And they decrease uh, feelings of empathy and compassion. Um, other meta-analyses have looked at uh, violence. Now, um, you know, it's not possible to know uh, whether playing a violent video game causes violent criminal behavior, such as uh, a school shooting, for example, uh, we can't know that for sure. Uh, correlation is a necessary cause, but not sufficient for making such uh, conclusions. But there are uh, several uh, meta-analyses that have looked at the correlation between exposure to violent media and violent criminal uh, behavior. And uh, these studies consistently find a significant positive correlation between exposure to media violence and violent criminal behavior, such as homicides, suicides, stabbings, assaults, things like that. Wow. One thing I, sh I, I would like to um, say is I know of no single scientific theory that would predict that it's harmful for children to be exposed to violence in their home. It's harmful for children to be exposed to violence at their schools, in their neighborhoods. But it's not harmful for children to be exposed to violence in the media. There's no theory that would make such a prediction. And I also know of no theory that would predict that Children, or anybody for that matter, could spend hours and hours engaging in any activity, and that activity would have absolutely no effect on their behavior. So, for example, we know the average American consumes over 15 hours of media a day. What could you do for 15 hours a day and have it have absolutely no effect on your behavior? And if the media has no effect on our behavior, why is it that an ad at the Super Bowl 
costs $4.5 million for a 30-second ad. But, but f- 15 hours a day sounds like a, a ridiculously huge number. I mean, that would mean that all of our waking hours essentially are, you know, us consuming media. Is that, I mean, it just seems like, you know, I mean, I, I totally get where you're coming from in the sense that we certainly spend probably more time consuming media than in any other activity other than sleeping, I would hope. Yeah, I think that's all. Uh, and that, that excludes media uh, consumed at work, but it includes all media. All screen media. It could be listening to music or uh, watching TV, playing uh, video games. I don't know the exact number of hours people spend playing video games, but I can't imagine that engaging in any behavior hour after hour after hour would have absolutely no effect on you. I I know of no theory that would make uh, such a prediction. And do you think that that might also ex- partly explain why some people are so reluctant to uh, accept the idea that violent video games can have a negative consequence on their lives? Um, yeah. Where does that denial come from? Yeah, I think there are several reasons why uh, people uh, reject this notion. Uh, what I hear the most is, you know, I-, I play violent video games and I've never killed anyone. Congratulations. <laughs> you never killed anyone, not even one single person. Wow, that's impressive. I mean, come on. Uh, in, in, in the United States, uh, fewer than five people per 100,000 uh, are murdered every year. Um, so the fact that you've never killed anyone means nothing to me because hardly anyone kills anyone. It's a very rare event. What I want to know is, you know, how you uh, treat strangers in the world, how you treat your roommate, how you treat family members, uh, things like that. The fact that you've never killed anyone uh, is not the acid test over whether some playing a violent video game is harmful because there are other ways to harm somebody besides killing them. A big uh, factor, I think, is cognitive dissonance reduction. Uh, Cognitive dissonance theory proposes that when people have two uh, thoughts that are inconsistent, they have this uncomfortable uh, feeling um, that um, this discomfort motivates them to rationalize their behavior. Uh, So, for example, the two inconsistent uh, ideas that people might be exposed to is, you know, I love playing violent video games. They're so fun versus uh, hearing about a study that shows that playing violent video games can increase aggression. So that causes uh, dissonance in people. And most people deal with that dissonance by saying, oh, the research is junk, it's biased, it's sloppy, it's junk science, uh, whatever they uh, uh, say. Um, And uh, research actually shows that gamers are more likely to do that than other uh, people. They discredit the research more uh, quickly. And actually, uh, some studies show that if the researchers make transparent the hypothesis, like that they expect violent games to increase aggression, uh, gamers actually bend over backwards to show that that's not the case and to, to mess up the uh, hypothesis. A third uh, theory 
that can explain uh, these differences is psychological reactance theory. People uh, don't like to be told what to do. People like to have the freedom to engage in behavior. And some people are saying, oh, media researchers, they're trying to ban violent video games. I know of no media researcher trying to ban violent video games. I'm certainly not trying uh, to do that. But when people feel like their freedom to engage in a behavior is being restricted in any way, they panic. And there's three common responses to that. First is whatever is being forbidden, you want it more. Second, you try harder to get it. And third, anybody who tries to stop you, you aggress against uh, that person. So that might be another explanation why people deny violent media effects. A third explanation is uh, catharsis theory. This theory can be traced uh, back to Aristotle, who argued that uh, viewing violent Greek uh, tragedies can purge and cleanse harmful emotions. Freud resurrected this idea and argued that frustrations build up inside a person like steam inside a pressure cooker. And unless you uh, express the anger, uh, you'll explode in an aggressive uh, rage. Um, So catharsis theory sounds good, but there's not a shred of scientific evidence to support it. People do feel better after venting their anger or playing violent video games. They love it. Um, But uh, research shows that that good feeling just reinforces aggressive behavior. Uh, People also feel good after taking street drugs or eating chocolate or french fries or drinking beer or whatever. But uh, just just because you feel good after doing something doesn't mean it's a healthy thing for you uh, to do. Another very robust effect is called the third-person effect. Uh, Research has consistently shown that people believe that although although violent media may affect other people, usually susceptible people, that they're somehow immune uh, to these effects. Um, And this is a very uh, robust uh, finding that's been demonstrated uh, many times that only susceptible people are affected. And of course, uh, that's you know it's true of anything. I don't I don't think anybody's immune to the effects of violent media. But some people are more affected than others. Just like nobody's immune to the effects of smoking cigarettes, but some people are more affected uh, than others. Also, the entertainment industry vehemently denies any connection between violent media and um, uh, aggressive or violent behavior, just like the tobacco industry vehemently denied any connection between cigarettes and uh, cancer. But it, it seems paradoxical that the uh, media, the entertainment industry can claim, on the one hand, that a few minutes of advertising can sell soap, salsa, cereal, even political candidates uh, to viewers. Indeed, a 30-second ad for the Super Bowl costs about $4.5 million. But on the other hand, the, the industry claims that the hours of programming surrounding the few minutes of advertising have absolutely no effect on viewers. I, I don't get it. 
And, um, you know, the final reason is people don't understand psychological processes as much as they do biological processes. So when you smoke a cigarette, you can imagine the smoke going inside your lungs and damaging them. But people have a hard time imagining how playing a violent video game could somehow make them a more aggressive or more numb person, even though the research evidence clearly indicates that it does. You know, and of course, the vast majority of the stuff going on in our brains is not available to us for conscious deliberation. <laughs> That's right. So, well, thank you very much for coming back on Inquiring Minds, Brad Bushman. My pleasure. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Ariel Waldman. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, cooking, art, as you want, at any time from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library with courses taught by award-winning professors and experts from places like National Geographic, the Smithsonian, and the Culinary Institute of America. The Great Courses series are normally priced at two to $300 each, but now you can get unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. If you have money in the stock market, you probably broke even this year, maybe even lost money. But if your dollars were invested in real estate in San Francisco, New York, Seattle, Chicago, or almost any other major city in the U.S., you likely enjoyed solid returns. Diversification is the name of the game when it comes to investing. If you're looking to diversify your portfolio with real estate, look no further than RealtyShares.com. RealtyShares is an online real estate investment marketplace that allows accredited investors to invest as little as $1,000 per transaction in residential and commercial real estate projects across the United States. RealtyShares is active in over 100 major metro areas. Thousands of investors use their platform to invest in real estate deals that are sourced and vetted by their experienced investment professionals. You can browse and invest in minutes from your computer. Go to realtyshares.com slash minds to create your free account today. They have already returned over $10 million to investors. Start investing today at realtyshares.com slash minds. Investments are risky and may lose value. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Ariel Waldman. Thank you. It's great to have you on our show. And I wanted to start out by first asking you a little bit about Science Hack Day, which uh, is your baby and um, something that now has sort of taken off around the world. Can I, is it accurate to say it's around the world? Are you global or is it yeah, just in the Yeah, uh, 20 countries. Yeah. That's awesome. So tell me about how the whole concept came about and what problem were you trying to solve? Uh, yeah, so Science Hack Day started uh, because I was talking about how frustrating it was that there was a lot of open science 
data and stuff out there, but no one was really doing anything with it. I was talking at um, South by Southwest, I think, gosh, uh, a few years ago, must have been 2010. And uh, sitting in the audience and and hearing my frustration was my friend Jeremy Keith. uh, And he was like, well, we should do something about this. Um, And so he put together the first Science Hack Day in London uh, that year. And then I put together Science Hack Day in San Francisco the same year. uh, And it it came together that way. And so Science Hack Day is really a uh, 48 hour event in which scientists, designers, developers, and all different types of people get together in the same physical space to see what they can rapidly prototype with science in 24 consecutive hours. You so- said that all in one breath. I just want to note. <laughs> it's, <laughs> Is that what it's like? It's yeah, this breathless, it's, you know, work environment? Yeah, it's a bit uh, chaotic by design. And it's around the mission of just getting excited and making things with science. So it's it's really, um, yeah, it's it's uh, sometimes it's silly and exploratory and playful, and it's just a lot of fun. So, uh, you know, how do you how does one take part in this event? Do you how do you curate it? How do you pick who it is that you bring together? How many people and so forth? So, uh, with Science Hack Day, um, there's multiple events all over the world. Um, anyone can attend. It's free to attend. Um, uh, sometimes we try to make sure to bring in people from a lot of different diverse backgrounds, but for the most part, it's open just for anyone who has a curiosity to attend. Um, also, uh, Science Hack Day is completely open source, meaning that anyone uh, in any city around the world can organize a Science Hack Day. There are instructions for how uh, to organize a Science Hack Day at sciencehackday.org. And it's uh, just a grassroots event. So you don't need permission to get started. You can just get started as soon as you like. So what's the best thing that's come out of Science Hack Day, do you think? Uh, I mean, to me, when I get asked what the best thing to come out of Science Hack Day is, I always say it's the people because I think something that a lot of hackathons get wrong is they think it's about really having braggable outputs, like what created a startup, what created a product, you know, what, you know, went into some sort of commercial business. And to me, I don't, those are nice things and they're great when they happen, but I don't care so much about that. To me, the thing that's really great that comes out of Science Hack Day is people having their relationship with science change and equally having scientists have their relationship with technology and design change and um, things just becoming more accessible and people feeling more empowered to play around with things, even if they don't have a formal background in them. And your educational background is actually not in science. It's in design, from what I understand. So how does your design mentality uh, come into play here? Um, And by the same token, you know, how did someone who was really uh, started out in design get that interested in science? Yeah, so being a designer, I think, really does influence me day to day with a lot of science things. Design is inherently about knowing how to communicate things effectively and knowing what knobs to push or pull um, to influence uh, the communication of concepts. And so in in that sense, uh, starting my career as a designer has very much set me up for um, exploring new topic areas and and areas of science, because I think a lot of times it's about how do you communicate things? How do you do storytelling and and all of those sorts of uh, uh, things that are just, I guess, uh, incredibly helpful for me to have a background in that. Um, In terms of how I got started in science and and space exploration, it was very unexpected. Um, I I didn't really ever consider myself to be a science or a space geek at all. uh, But I guess back in 2008, I was watching 
a documentary called When We Left Earth, which was this really great documentary about NASA in the early days and how they were trying to figure out how to send someone into space. Um, and I was watching this documentary, and the thing that struck me so much about it was they were interviewing all of the people who had worked at NASA in the 1960s, and they were talking about how they didn't know anything about orbits or rocketry or spacecrafts, and they were having to figure it out as they went along. And so I was watching this as a designer, thinking, well, I don't know anything about space exploration. I want to work at NASA. That sounds amazing. And so I uh, decided to very uh, randomly send someone at NASA that I had never met an email saying that I was a huge fan of, of what they were doing. And if they ever needed uh, someone like me, um, th that I was here. Uh, I completely did not expect to hear back from this email. But uh, serendipitously, I was able to get a job at NASA from that email. And it really changed my life. And it changed my outlook on science. And it made me really realize that even though there are a lot of people without formal science educations that they have meaningful things to contribute to the furtherment of science and space exploration. And so ever since getting that job at NASA, I've sort of been on this personal mission to show how anyone can actively contribute to science and space exploration and oftentimes create serendipitous solutions that otherwise wouldn't have been created otherwise. Well, now that you've caused a barrage of emails to go to NASA <laughs> from our listeners who probably have the same dream of getting such an awesome job, tell us about that first job. What did you do? Yeah, so I got a job at NASA, um, NASA Ames, uh, working for a program called CoLab. Uh, CoLab really sought to facilitate collaboration between communities inside and outside of NASA. And so they specifically wanted someone who had zero experience with NASA whatsoever uh, to sort of help bridge the gap between NASA and other communities like the startup communities in Silicon Valley or amateur astronomers um, and so on. And so I was very fortunate in that um, they were looking for someone specifically like me to really help them. And so it was a, a really great program for while, while it lasted. Unfortunately, it, it only lasted for a short while, but um, it was a great program to help uh different missions within NASA open up their data and to really help uh, create meaningful collaborations. And that wasn't the only uh, job that you had at NASA. <laughs> so tell us about um, the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Project and your role in that. Yeah, so I'm now an advisor. Uh, I sit on the external council for the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program, um, which I'm very biased, but I think it's the coolest program at NASA. It's a small program, but it's a program that funds all the more sci-fi, futuristic, and out there ideas that could transform future space missions. So things that could maybe transform future space missions, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now. And so this program actually gives funding to uh, do the research and uh, prototyping of a lot of these concepts that otherwise wouldn't receive funding because they're still a little um, out there, I guess, is the best way to put it. And, and so it's, it's a really fascinating uh, program. It's the only program within NASA that's really doing this uh, very futuristic sort of investment in research. And uh, the external council um, who advises uh, NIAC is uh, a great group of people They've got sci-fi authors, they've got quantum physicists, they've got people who work on completely different areas. Um, and so I was, I was very um, honored to be included in part of that. And so what, what is the output of that kind of a committee? What do you guys do? Do you, do you provide, do you, do you create white papers, for example, for um, NASA administration to consider? Or is this more about um, bringing in, you know, sort of 
making the making NASA sexy again to the general public? Uh, you know, what's the goal? Yeah, with the external counsel, it's really meant as uh, sort of advising the program and the direction of the program. So it's not uh, the external counsel doesn't uh, pick who gets uh, funded or not, which is actually good because then we can try and encourage people to to uh, apply without having much of a conflict of interest. But it really tries to advise the program on the direction it's going um, and and help sort of uh, make sure it it stays a, a good course, so to speak. For me personally, a, a personal goal I've made out of being on the external council is I really am trying to get people from completely different scientific disciplines to apply to this. And this is because there are a lot of interesting concepts in neuroscience or oceanography or geophysics. Um, and you have scientists working in these areas that have no experience working with NASA whatsoever. And they could actually apply their really cool research towards a space mission concept and have it be really meaningful and actually create new solutions for space exploration. And so a lot of what I try and focus on is getting people and academics and scientists and researchers uh, from these completely uh, different disciplines to apply to the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program, because to me, I think it can only get more rich and and valuable by having um, input from uh, people from disciplines outside of space science. And so do they fund these projects? Is that, is that what, what the idea is that they, they provide funding or grant funding for, you know, let's say a neuroscientist wa- wants to figure out what are going to be the cognitive consequences of living in a lower gravity atmosphere. And so, you know, they want to they want to figure out how to make people um, smarter in zero G. You know, is that something that they can then apply for funding for through this agency or or yeah so they so every year i think around uh i think maybe next year it's around august or september so uh they open up applications uh, for anyone to apply to apply to NIAC. it only takes uh at first a three-page white paper so it's actually a fairly simple initial application to the program um and uh if you are awarded a grant through the phase one awards as they call them uh, they give you $100,000 uh, over 9 to 12 months. And then if you uh, if you get that award, you can then reapply um, for a phase two award, which would be $500,000 over two years. And so this is, you know, a small amount of money, relatively speaking, but enough money to at least get the research started into a lot of these concepts. And, you know, different con- for different concepts and different disciplines, this money might be more valuable than others. Yeah, it sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so one of your other kind of space-related activities is to run spacehack.org. So tell us about that. So spacehack.org is a directory of ways to participate in space exploration. So this is uh, things like discovering galaxies or building uh, next generation of Mars rovers, things that uh, people can do with or without a formal science background. And what, do you, what is one of your favorite pet projects on spacehack.org? If you could only pick one to participate in, what should our listeners be looking for? Oh, that's a good one. A good question to ask. Um, one project I like a lot is the University Rover Challenge, and that's a challenge to build the next generation of Mars rovers. And it's something that you can participate in if you're a university student um, internationally. And uh, I think it's a fascinating challenge because... I think there's a lot of education spent about getting kids excited about the existing Mars rovers that we have. Like, oh, one day you could build a Mars rover just like that. 
And kids get this idea in their head that NASA knows the best way to build a Mars rover. Um, They don't necessarily get the agency or the, I guess, sort of more punk rock attitude of you can create uh, a rover in a bunch of different ways. You could create rovers that act like tumbleweeds. You could create rovers that act like frogs. You know, there's just different ways to build these robots that explore other planets. And so with the University Rover Challenge, it's a challenge to create those new ways and to uh, just think about how I guess NASA doesn't necessarily know the best way to do things. They're doing their best, but there's other ways to do things. And I think teaching kids that you can uh, build stuff or you might have ideas that are better than NASA, I think is very important. So in addition to all of these ways in which you're bringing science to the general public, you've you've also got a book on the horizon uh, in which you interview astronauts about what it's like in space. So, you know, I can imagine this is where, you know, some of your awesome storytelling skills uh, come into play. But, you know, first of all, tell us, you know, how did you, where did the concept of the book come from? And what sort of is the scope of the book? How many people did you interview? And and sort of what what do we have to look forward to? Yeah, so this book that I have coming out called What's It Like in Space, uh, it really started because I was put on this National Academy of Sciences committee about the future of human spaceflight for a couple of years. Um, It was a very exciting committee to be a part of, um, and I got to meet and hear from a lot of astronauts uh, through part of it, and so I would oftentimes come home and I'd be telling uh, my significant other about all these funny stories that I had heard. And I'm fairly shy at uh, social gatherings. And so a lot of times I started finding that it was easier for me to tell stories that I had heard from astronauts rather than have to talk about myself. Uh, So I started sort of collecting these different stories from astronauts that I had heard in my head, and I decided to turn them into a book. And I think the thing that was really I guess, different about a lot of the uh, stories that I had heard is because I had heard a lot of them in informal settings and and not as official presentations. A lot of them were really just amusing and silly and uh, ridiculous. And I just loved hearing all of these things that I guess were a little less buttoned up about what it was like in space. Yeah. And, you know, we've got um, a kind of zeitgeist now of that, you know, we're starting to see astronauts um, because of a couple astronaut celebrities who have, you know, been vocal on Twitter, even when they're in space and so forth. So we we feel now like we've actually gotten to know um, in more personally, some of these people that we've sent up to space. So do you think that from your book, you've kind of gathered, you know, is there is there an astronaut prototype? Is there an astronaut personality? What are the common elements that, you know, join these people together? I mean, definitely, uh, I guess an element that joins them together is, you know, the element of, of wanting to explore the unknown. But I think one of the things that was kind of delightful was actually hearing a diversity of uh, experiences or, or, or the ways that stories were told from astronauts was uh, really delightful. There is certainly, you know, the very concept of an astronaut being fairly buttoned up and being, you know, uh, your general, you know, uh, uh, plain toast American sort of uh, astronaut. Um, and, and some of those people are that way, but also uh, getting to interview um, people who were also, as they call them, spaceflight participants, people who were not uh, government-paid astronauts, but people who had actually sent themselves up into space because they had the money to, um, and hearing those stories, uh, it was was kind of delightful. And so it, it at least made me look forward to a future in which we continue to 
try to make space exploration more accessible and can actually start getting those different perspectives and, and start getting, I guess, even more silly stories that are easier to relate to because they're from people who uh, haven't spent decades of their life towards uh, one goal in a, a government agency. So yeah, tell us about one person that you talked to who was not, you know, an astronaut in the sense that they worked for NASA, um, but rather paid their own way up to space. You know, give us give us a story. My absolute favorite uh, to talk to was uh, Anusha Ansari. Uh, she's the first Iranian in space. Uh, she flew up out of Russia. And, you know, it, she had a lot of interesting stories to tell and, and some funny stories that I could share. Uh, but I think the thing that really struck me the most was just her talking about different moments where something wrong would happen. And she would just talk about being so embarrassed to be in front of all these, you know, otherwise considered professional astronauts and have something go wrong. And it was just... I don't know. It was really just delightful to talk to her because she just told these stories the same way you would tell a story about being embarrassed about something happening in high school or something. And uh, it was really it was really lovely. And, and I guess in general, she's a really lovely individual. And despite, you know, the romantic notion of going out into space and being a pioneer and, you know, looking back down on the Earth, we sort of have this vision of what it's like. Um I, you know, I know, I know space exploration actually is, you know, kind of hard and dirty and physically challenging and not so fun and your <laughs> yeah. mind gets fuzzy. And so, you know, have, after having heard all these stories, do you still want to go to space? <laughs> I don't know if I ever necessarily had a desire to go to space. And it's a question I get asked a lot. A lot of people are like, oh, so you're just dying to go to space. And like, no, not really. Like, I mean, I, I'm not saying no, never, but... It, it really sounds like a camping trip from hell, and I hate camping. So, <laughs> yeah, that, so so maybe we need, we have a while to go before we can glamp up to space. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Once there's more glamping, uh, maybe I'll consider it. <laughs> so, um, what is the future of human spaceflight? That's a good question. It's certainly an area that is very fascinating for me, I guess, to watch where other people are thinking the future of human spaceflight is and sort of seeing how that does or doesn't match up with reality. Uh, right now, something that happens often is you get a lot of baby boomers saying, oh, you know, we thought we would have moon colonies by now and all these different things. And I am watching almost in slow motion, my generation, the millennials, convinced that we're going to be going to Mars fairly soon. And I can just already see that we're going to be just like the baby boomers and saying, oh, we were supposed to be on Mars by now and we're not. And, and it's not to say that we're not going to be landing on Mars, but the more I've learned about what it takes to actually land humans on the surface of Mars, uh, the more... I have realized that I will thank my lucky stars if it happens in my lifetime. It's not impossible, but it is far from guaranteed. And I think prior to getting involved in um, this human spaceflight committee with the National Academy of Sciences, I think I was one of the people who was like, yeah, well, Mars is harder than the moon, but you know, it's a step up, but we can do it. No problem. Like, not a big deal. And uh, I greatly underestimated, as do the majority of people, just how difficult it is technologically, how difficult it is politically, how difficult it is um, from a money standpoint. And so it's it's something where 
on one hand, you can get very depressed about it. The more you learn about it, the more you learn about how just how difficult it is and how so many things have to come together at the same time for it to make it even possible. On the other hand, a very optimistic viewpoint and, and the viewpoint I try and maintain about it is the fact that no matter who goes to Mars, it's going to require international collaboration on a scale that we haven't seen before, just on a completely unprecedented scale. And so if we are to make something like landing a human on Mars happen, um, the amount of people it's going to take and the amount of collaborations it's going to take and the amount of things that are going to have to come together to make it happen will be such a huge accomplishment. And it will be such a more massive accomplishment than uh, landing someone on the moon was. So as a designer, You've been privy to a lot of these conversations about the future of spaceflight, about, you know, the Innovative Advanced Concepts Committee, you know, crazy science fiction ideas. And one of the arguments for why we should spend taxpayer dollars on something like a mission to Mars is that all of the things that are going to be invented to get us to Mars will also help us down here on Earth. And that, in fact, that kind of reach in, you know, brings together great minds, sparks their creativity and allows us to solve problems in our society that we might not have if we hadn't had that kind of other goal. So is there anything that you've come across in your conversations or in any of these committees that made you a designer think to yourself, wow, you know what, I really want to make a prototype of that right now. And, you know, has that has that happened? Um, I don't know if it's necessarily inspired me to create a new technological, you know, breakthrough for human spaceflight. It'd be awesome if I came up with an idea for something. <laughs> I haven't. Uh, but but pointing on, uh, I guess, the, the rationales for human spaceflight, I think, is a very interesting argument, because that was something that our human spaceflight committee ended up looking at. And it, the report that we produced last year actually went through what are the rationales for doing human spaceflight in the first place. And so some of them are very pragmatic, like uh, you mentioned, like with science or inspiration or, you know, international collaboration and, and things like that. Um, but two of the rationales that we also outlined were uh, not pragmatic, but aspirational in nature. So they were um, survival of the human species and uh, shared human destiny to like explore and so on. And uh, the thing is, with all the pragmatic rationales, while they are good arguments for human spaceflight, they are not unique to human spaceflight. So it is true that human spaceflight and space exploration in general does create a lot of a lot, a lot, a lot of innovations that end up benefiting us here on Earth. However, there are many other sciences that do the same. But when it comes to the aspirational rationales of survival of the human species or uh, shared human destiny, uh, those were specific to human spaceflight. And so what the report actually ended up arguing in the end is that it was the combination of the pragmatic rationales with the aspirational that really argue for a continuation of human spaceflight in general. And so the thing that's really fascinating about that is a lot of people were looking for like this silver bullet of like, what's the one answer that explains why we do this? And the reality is, is that people give different answers and more often than not, they combine different rationales with that. And so um, talking about like the science rationale and the benefits to humanity, I think is important, but I think uh, it's also thinking about, uh, yeah, some of the more out there things about, you know, sort of the more Star Trek-like view of, of you know, our shared human destiny to explore. Um, of course, not everyone will uh, share every rationale, but they're interesting to think about. Well, on that note, I want to thank you for joining us on Inquiring Minds. We'll look forward to reading your book next year. Thanks again, Ariel Waldman. Thanks so much. 
So I love Ariel, especially for all she's done for democratizing science, making it really accessible for experts in any field really to come together and participate. I've actually participated in Science Hack Day a few times. And even though Ariel talks about, I, I think, the the projects at the end, I totally echo what she says when it's really about the people. Some of the best experiences I had at Science Hack Day were at like two, three in the morning where people are either losing their mind because a project won't work and are ready to like slam their invention on the ground. Or you have these like weird moments of brilliance because you've locked all these smart people in a room together. There was a time when I met this um, uh, geneticist from Lawrence Livermore, who uh, works at a, a sort of a uh, an independent sort of community laboratory as well on the side. And he like trained under George Church, has all this like scientific pedigree. But he was like, you know that how they decellularize heart tissue and implant them with stem cells to regrow, re- regrow organ tissue. He's like, I want to do that. And which is like insane, right? Like, how do you supposed to do that over 48 hours, this like really advanced research concept? So like I sat with him like as he sort of formulated different ways to dissolve like di- organ tissue and like using like different uh, uh, solvents like from detergent on the line to eat away at that tissue and leaving the architecture in place. It's the best thing about Science Hack Day. Well, I'm really excited about it. So for those of you that don't know or who are in the Bay Area, Science Hack Day in the Bay Area is actually tomorrow, October 24th through the 25th. And uh, it's free. And I think, I don't know if they... if Registration the- will be closed by then. But oh, okay. there are uh, at least 10 different Science Hack Days around the globe, including one that just concluded in, in Russia. Uh, there's one in Africa. I believe it was in Uganda. Uh, there's ones in big cities across this country. So no matter where you live, you should... Uh, be able to find a science hack day near you. And if you don't come up with a great product, that two in the morning pulling your hair out gives you the authentic experience of what it's like to be a scientist. I don't know. So, (laughs) you know, at three in the morning, I heard them turn on the particle wind chime, which Ariel referenced. And it was a pretty trippy experience hitting, hearing particle collisions and composing music to it. Uh, things to look forward to for my weekend. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on Patreon, especially Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us on patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own science hack day registration page or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography as you want, at any time, from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Realty Shares. With Realty Shares, you can invest in professionally vetted real estate deals in just a few minutes. Join thousands of other investors by registering free at realtyshares.com slash minds. Browse all the investments at no cost once you're qualified. Invest as little as $1,000 per transaction and diversify your portfolio in minutes. Realty Shares has already returned over $10 million to investors to date. Visit realtyshares.com slash minds to get started. 
Inquiring Minds is produced by Black Hat Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, City Lab, Medium, and The Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Gian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.